Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Thomas Kortowski, and I'm a practice lead here at uh, Global Council. I am honored to have uh, John Hughes um, joining us today. Uh, John is uh, a senior vice president at Albright Stonebridge Group and was formerly a deputy director in the Office of Sanctions Policy and Implementation at the US uh, State Department. Uh, we would like uh, to discuss today uh, sanctions policy and how the COVID-19 pandemic is perhaps uh, changing uh, some of the uh, international dynamics. John, uh, before I would like to bring you in, I would perhaps make uh, three uh, pointed remarks on where we stood uh, before the pandemic started. Uh, I think perhaps uh, the most important one, uh, certainly from a European perspective, is uh, an observation that uh, the US uh, government under President Trump has certainly made um, extensive, if not excessive, use uh, of sanctions uh, in recent years. It has been the choice uh, uh, or the tool of choice for many governments previously, perhaps because it's relatively cheap and, uh, and businesses are those who, who largely implement sanctions. Uh, but then again, the extent to which countries and companies have been targeted or even coerced um, under Trump has been, in my view, unprecedented. Also, the way sanctions have been threatened or announced, sometimes uh, through almost sadistic tweets from Trump, has raised uh, many eyebrows, uh, certainly on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, I think there has also been a suspicion, uh, especially in, in, in Europe, that US sanctions uh, are meant to serve particular business interests, perhaps instead of policy interests. Now, this approach of the Trump administration, I think it's fair to say, has clearly eroded a transatlantic uh, unity or some sort of consensus that existed previously, at least, on uh, sanctions policy. Admittedly, there has always been a delicate balance to strike uh, between both sides of the Atlantic, uh, which is largely due to the extraterritorial effect uh, that US sanctions have, um, and uh, something that uh, the US uh, does not impose uh, in, in the same form as uh, the US does. Now, I think while we saw during uh, the Obama administration uh, a, a move from, from Europe to to qualitatively uh, tougher sanctions, uh, especially against uh, Iran and, and Russia since 2014, the, the US withdrawal from uh, the nuclear deal uh, has certainly been uh, the, the main issue that has been um, uh, the key driver of, of this eroding transatlantic consensus. Now, perhaps the most important observation, again, from a European perspective is uh, perhaps that the US has gotten away with all of this. Uh, the Iran deal remains perhaps uh, nominally in place, uh, but US businesses have largely you know, left Iran, have lost, or some of them have, have lost uh, billions of euros uh, in their invest investments. And uh, it seems, and, and Europe seems particularly unable uh, to respond to to the, the weaponization of the US dollar that we have seen uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And, and I think in, in, in Europe, at least, um, this 
uh, feeling of of um, of weakness uh, to stand up against uh, U.S. sanctions has certainly also uh, been quite important in in the European debate about um, about European uh, strategic uh, autonomy or independence, which uh, is a uh, a topic which now the uh, the so-called geopolitical commission in Brussels uh, has taken up as well. Uh, but perhaps to, 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 to start setting the scene uh, for, uh, for the response to the pandemic, uh, John, um, I think in, in, in March and April, uh, we saw quite uh, significant uh, calls from uh, multilateral organizations uh, to lift sanctions, uh, for example, uh, the UN Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Michel Bachelet, said uh, that countries should lift sanctions to allow, for the, to allow for the supply of medicines and other health equipment. The Iranian leadership um, has equally called uh, for sanctions relief, uh, which was then echoed by Russia's President Vladimir Putin at the uh, G20. John, uh, perhaps as a first question, um, how would you describe uh, the response uh, to uh, the pandemic in, in the sanctions field. Great. Thanks, Thomas, and, and thanks, everybody, for joining. Um, a lot of uh, issues you just raised and, and look forward to getting in, into some of them uh, during the conversation. Um, I think that your specific question on COVID, you know, it's a fairly simple answer, which is that I don't think actually that the pandemic has really uh, affected U.S. thinking towards, towards sanctions policy uh, or, or really changed their, their behavior whatsoever. Um, you know, certainly you make the point that sanctions has become a tool of choice around the world. I, I would argue that it is the number one foreign policy tool of choice for the United States at the moment. Uh, this is not just during the Trump administration. This has been building up uh, really since post 9-11 uh, and subsequent administrations. Uh, and I think especially over the last decade where the U.S. has seen the uh, efficacy of sanctions uh, and its ability to, to use them as a tool. Uh, and like you said, no cost, uh, or at least low cost option. Um, I think that they have really embraced it as, as a, uh, a way to, to do something without having to come to any other sort of harder decisions. So with all that framing, I think during COVID, uh, you know, they have not really been willing to change that stance. And certainly if you look at US sanctions policy across the board, you know, they often say, and, and in fact, the Trump administration to their credit has been more explicit about this, that sanctions are meant to change behavior. Uh, and, you know, if the target in question changes its behavior, then uh, U.S. sanctions can be lifted. I think in all of the cases that, that you cite uh, on the humanitarian side, whether it's Iran or, or Venezuela or, or elsewhere, I don't think that you've seen that change in the behavior, at, at least from the U.S. government's perspective. Uh, and so they don't really see that as a reason to lift sanctions. Now, there are two things that they did, um, really just one, uh, you know, one is pre-COVID, one is post-COVID. So pre-COVID, uh, you know, they, they were willing to work with uh, the Swiss government, as I'm sure everybody saw, to set up a potential humanitarian channel uh, to get food and medicine into Iran. Uh, I think that's a notable step. And, you know, I understand that they're looking to replicate that in, in other countries. Uh, you know, whether it works or not is a different matter, which we can discuss. Uh, and then, you know, for, for COVID itself, you know, they, they put out a fact sheet that basically just relisted all of their um, uh, FAQs that were already public to say that sanctions don't target uh, humanitarian trade, despite the fact that uh, there's lots of problems there, which, which we can also discuss. 
I think that was the extent of what they were willing to do and, and able to do. Uh, and, and I don't expect that they'll do uh, much more uh, at this point on, on the humanitarian front. I think that is very interesting, uh, John, because in, in many respects, uh, that is uh, similar uh, to the EU uh, response, um, which has also pointed to uh, perhaps to the ability uh, to still conduct humanitarian trade while, um, while sanctions clearly uh, you know, are meant to, to change behavior. And unless uh, behavior has been changed, uh, sanctions will remain in place. But I find it also interesting how, uh, how the EU, uh, for example, has, has used the crisis to finally uh, get up and running a special purpose vehicle called Instex, uh, which has been uh, basically um, discussed since the US withdrawal from the deal to allow for the continuation um, of trade uh, between uh, Europe and, and Iran and potentially um, also third countries and Iran. Um, for a long time, uh, some, in, in some cases for, for because of practical issues, but also because of concerns of uh, US retaliation or US sanctions, uh, actually the, the vehicle hadn't been uh, set up. But now in, in March, um, the EU reported that, um, that it was used now uh, for the first time. Uh, John, what do you think, uh, how, uh, how much does the US uh, see uh, instruments like Instex um, as a threat and, and how, how do you think it will respond to, to initiatives to basically circumvent uh, US sanctions by circumventing uh, the US dollar and US financial system? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, you know, maybe a broader point on that and then on Instex in particular. So I think that, you know, obviously the US government is aware of these things. I think that there is sort of a general concern about the erosion of the, you know, the US dollar and ability for countries to get around it. But I think, you know, frankly, at this point, that, that's sort of on the fringes of the debate, and it's largely taking place outside of the official halls of power, um, you know, think tanks and, and other places. And the reason for that is because, you know, most people in the U.S. government, and, and I think most people who work on sanctions policy would argue that, you know, these are all very limited at this point, and the U.S. dollar will likely be dominant for, you know, years to come. Uh, and so I don't think that there's a huge concern at this point. Uh, that said, uh, there is a recognition that countries are trying to do this, and certainly U.S. actions in the last few years have pushed countries further along this path. And so I do think that the U.S. government, as a policy matter, will look to take action uh, against certain activities that they see if they think that they are trying to circumvent sanctions, uh, and depending on uh, what those actions are, just to make the point that, you know, uh, that they can do that, uh, you know, sanctions themselves doesn't really need to involve the dollar, uh, as many of you on this call probably know. It's more about the activity uh, in question. And so uh, I think the U.S. government will try to make that point a couple times uh, if, if they can, or at least one time to use an, an example uh, at some point. Now, on, on insects in particular, I don't know if that's going to be the example. Uh, it really depends on what, you know, what happens. So, so there's a couple points on insects. The main one is that and many people on this call, especially in Europe, will, will appreciate this. You know, virtually all companies at this point have abandoned trade with Iran. Uh, there's very little trade happening uh, by anybody in the West uh, across the board, and, and the trade that does happen is, is quite limited and, and largely humanitarian in, in nature. You know, I'm not talking about certain other countries that may still trade with Iran, but at least sort of in Europe and the U.S., that's it's largely been abandoned. And so, you know, if the U.S. thinks about this from a policy perspective, uh, you know, they, they don't really see Instex as a threat, right? European companies are not going to use Instex uh, 
for that much. You know, if anything, maybe humanitarian trade here or there that you know largely is already allowed. You know, despite the U.S. government making the point that Instex is closing its sanctions. You know, I think as long as the trade itself is you know humanitarian in nature, it, it may not do anything. Um, although, again, there's a possibility it could if it feels that it needs to to make the point. Um, but th this would be a very different scenario if, if Instex was actually operational in the sense of, you know, companies actively trying to get around sanctions. But at this point, that's not the case, and I don't expect it to be the case anytime soon. And so I think the U.S. government sees it more as uh, an annoyance than uh, something that they really need to focus on. Okay, that uh, probably gives uh, um, uh, some of us uh, a bit of a, a relief, uh, because if we looking at uh, the, the upcoming or the, the next couple of months, um, the US uh, presidential election is uh, clearly uh, approaching and, and there are some, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say quite if, if Europeans have uh, raised eyebrows about the US idea, uh, which I think uh, Pompeo um, uh, has, uh, has started, um, that the US is still a, a member of the nuclear deal and can therefore uh, still um, prevent the expiration of an UN arms embargo against Iran, uh, which according to the deal would expire uh, by, uh, by the mid of October. Now many European countries probably sh share the concerns of the US government, um, but are not willing to, to basically uh, to kill the deal ahead of uh, the US election. Um, what do you think to what extent uh, will um, this UN arms embargo be an issue in the U U uh, US election? And, and what might this mean for uh, the US approach towards, um, towards the issue? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that this is definitely a flashpoint, uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that you just mentioned, Thomas, that the US and Europeans largely agree on the issue of uh, the fact that you know Iran should not have access to some of these conventional weapons, um, but you know the, the relationship is, is largely broken at this point, uh, as as you know, and I think that there's very little ability for the U.S. and Europeans to come to to common ground uh, on this or, or or other issues, frankly. And so, uh, you know, at least during this administration, um, and so I think that you know, it, it does create a, a problem. Um, the U.S. government, just based on what I've seen, and I think what everybody here has seen, I think that they are, you know, willing to go it alone uh, at the U.N., just as they have elsewhere. Uh, you know, whether or not they believe that the U.N. matters at all is a separate question. Um, and I think that they, you know, believe that because they never actually reimposed U.N. sanctions, um, that, you know, that they are still able to, that they didn't actually forfeit that ability just because they uh, left the deal. Uh, and so I think that, you know, this is going to be largely a political calculation for the Trump administration. And there's going to be two different factors there. The one hand is that, um, as many of you know, the sanctions that were put back in place by the U.S. government, secondary sanctions in particular, represent, you know, almost all of the sanctions that matter against Iran from a company perspective. Uh, you know, certainly some European sanctions uh, were helpful uh, to get European companies on board back in the day. But at this point, you know, because the secondary sanctions are so broad and sweeping, like I said before, most companies have stopped doing business with Iran. And so putting UN sanctions snap back in place would be largely symbolic. And so I, I think that the Trump administration doesn't care so much about that. Uh, that does maybe mean that they won't do it because they don't think it has much of an impact. 
But unfortunately, then there's the second other hand point, which is that uh, I think they do care about the arms embargo. And so uh, I think that they very well may be willing to go ahead and do that, um, especially because I think for Trump, you know, this is a political calculation. We do have an election coming up. Iran is obviously an issue that is very much, uh, lots of people in the US are still opposed to Iran being able to do anything, uh, particularly on the Republican side. Uh, and I think that if, and this is you know my personal view here, but if the uh, if the Trump keeps getting bad news over the next few months and it looks you know less likely that he is you know coasting to victory, uh, then I think something like this is an easy way to show that he's uh, doing something. Um, now the last point I'm making this is that um, obviously that will uh, mean that there's an Iranian response. I don't know what that response would be, but certainly something along the lines of you know, restarting other parts of their uh, nuclear activities that were prohibited under the JCPOA. It's possible that that could lead to a, you know, hotter crisis. Uh, but that may, you know, frankly, be something that the Trump administration is okay with, because that may also help them politically. So I don't want to make the case that they are only doing this because it helps them politically, but I think that they genuinely believe that Iran should not get these conventional weapons. And, you know, the added benefit that it also may have them politically, if they do something, means that this at least a decent chance that they will do it, but uh, I don't think it's guaranteed. So John, you're basically mentioning a, a potential, a quite significant source of, of tensions uh, in the transatlantic relationship over the next couple of months. I suppose uh, there's another one. And uh, if, I, if I look uh, at another uh, geography at the moment uh, and particularly uh, to Russia, um, it, it strikes me how um, the debate uh, in, in, in Europe and, and the United States, or, or at least in parts of Europe and, and the United States, uh, differ quite uh, significantly. Of course, in, uh, to take one example, uh, in, in Germany, um, the, the tough, tougher EU approach towards Russia uh, since uh, 2014 has always uh, has always uh, been seen with suspicion or skepticism uh, by some. Um, uh, recently, the, uh, the former head of the, uh, the second largest party, uh, the Social Democratic Party, uh, Matthias Blatzek, he wrote a, a book again arguing for, uh, for why uh, sanctions don't work and, uh, and why, um, why basically Europe and, and Germany should uh, work uh, closer with Russia. Um, at the same time, uh, why, while uh, Europe has uh, been quite closely aligned with the US in, in many areas when it comes especially to Crimea and Ukraine related sanctions, uh, North, Stream, North Stream seems to be uh, increasingly um, dividing uh, both. And, and um, last year we, we saw um, additional sanctions on, on companies, uh, US sanctions on companies uh, laying the pipes. Um, I, if I'm uh, not mistaken, uh, the Congress is now uh, discussing further uh, sanctions, uh, which, could, which could even impose uh, restrictive measures on uh, government um, uh, um, uh, offices uh, that are involved in in um, in the construction of uh, of Nord Stream two. Two. So my question for you is, uh, what drives in in the U.S. system at the moment? Um, the approach towards uh, Nord Stream 2 and, and, and Russia more, more widely? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think Russia is a very different situation than Iran. Uh, in the case of Iran, it's really 
um, it's not a bipartisan issue. You know, there's a very, you know, there's a group of people who are very strongly opposed uh, to Iran being able to do things. And, and, you know, some of those are on the Hill, some are within the Trump administration, but largely, uh, you know, one-sided. Um, I think in the case of Russia, it's largely a bipartisan uh, issue and that both Republicans and Democrats are, you know, uh, feel that Russia uh, is, you know, undertaking activities around the world that are contrary to U.S. interests. And uh, and I, I think many would agree with the statement that U.S.-Russia relationship is probably at, uh, if not an all-time low, close to an all-time low, certainly back to the days of the Cold War. It's, you know, maybe not as bad as some of those, but it's, it's pretty bad right now. Um, and, you know, both sides still feel very, um, you know, raw emotions about what happened in 2016, or at least what was perceived to happen in 2016. Um, and then, you know, Russia's uh, continuing activities on the world stage. And so uh, I think that, you know, all of this is to say that, you know, at least on the Hill, there's a continued view that um, it's a useful thing to focus on Russia and to come up with ways to continue to hit Russia. You know, the different dynamic there is that the Trump administration, um, and despite what I just said, you know, and I, I won't get into details and all of this, and all of you may have your own views, but certainly there's a dynamic there with, you know, with the impeachment trial and the, you know, the Mueller investigation and all this that is now wrapped up, but certainly at least insinuations of Trump administration uh, willingness to work with Russia or accepting Russia's assistance and, and all the rest. I think that puts Democrats in a position of really wanting to push down even harder on uh, on Russia, but it means at the same time that certain Republicans in the Hill and notably uh, Speaker, uh, sorry, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, you know, may be unwilling to bring a bill forward that would put Trump in a position of having to crack down harder on Russia. Uh, it's not that he doesn't think that that should happen, but I think that there's at least a calculation there that uh, he doesn't want to have to put President Trump into a position of of doing something like that in the lead up to the election because Trump doesn't want to, you know, talk about Russia anymore. Not that it's because he wants to let Russia off the hook, but I think he feels that um, this is all done now. The so-called witch hunt is over and, and, you know, he doesn't want people to be talking about Russia. So that's, that's at least one dynamic there. And it may mean that this bill never moves forward. Uh, it's also possible that just everything that's going on in the Hill um, is that they, you know, just because it's in committee, this new uh, Nord Stream bill doesn't mean that anything will happen with it. And it's not clear to me that it's actually going to move forward, regardless of whether or not McConnell thinks it should. Um, then the last point I'll make is just on, you know, Nord Stream itself. I think that, you know, most people in the U.S. that are focused on this issue would argue, and rightly so, that, you know, it's kind of a not the smartest thing to focus on because it's already largely built and Russia has shown that it can probably finish it itself. Uh, I think some in the Congress are, were heartened by the fact that the last Nord Stream bill did delay things and made, you know, Swiss company pull out of, the, uh, of building the pipe. So, so they feel like maybe they can do other things to stop it at this point. I'm skeptical that that would happen, but uh, I think that, you know, uh, it's certainly, it, it's a winner for many people to focus on this. And so they may, they may try to push it forward, but it's, it's not clear to me that this is sort of a, a existential issue for the U.S. Uh, in the fact that they need to focus on it. One more point I'll make and, and then stop is that I, I also think that, you know, the Trump administration certainly is not going to, uh, not going to take into account the fact that it may make European or German in particular businesses upset. Uh, they just don't operate that way uh, at this point. So, so I, I don't think that that particular argument is, is part of the, the calculation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting how, how obviously the, the, the pre-election uh, dynamics are also influencing uh, uh, much of this. Um, if, if you would look at um, 
let's say the, the electoral map of the United States and think about um, how a certain, you know, how, how sanctions could influence uh, and perhaps in favor of Trump, uh, the election. Uh, which countries do you think um, are most at risk? And perhaps added to that, and from a European perspective, uh, just because Turkey is always um, a country, uh, you know, that is in European domestic politics very important. Uh, to what extent is uh, is you know Turkey um, a country uh, that you know is is quite quite prominent in uh, U.S. Uh, domestic debates on sanctions in particular? Yeah, let me answer that last question first, and then I'll talk about the broader at-risk countries. So I, I don't think Turkey is a big focus right now. Um, I mean, there is you know there, there's a focus on Turkey for other reasons, but not for sanctions. Um, you know, the one outstanding issue with Turkey right now is around the S-400 delivery from Russia. Uh, but I think that based on statements made on both sides over the last few weeks, uh, as long as Turkey doesn't operationalize those S-400s, I, I don't think that the U.S. will do anything about it, uh, at least in the short term. Um, so that's that's Turkey. Uh, overall, uh, I do think that election does play a role in many of this, and it, I, am not, I do not mean to argue that the Trump administration is only making these decisions based on the election. That, that is not true. There are many within the Trump administration who believe strongly in these different issues and, uh, and I think believe that they should be putting pressure on these, some of these countries now um, for different reasons. Uh, but it's hard to separate that from, you know, there is obviously the election to think about and, and, and they, there are some that are thinking about how this will impact them. So with that said, uh, I think that, you know, the so-called maximum pressure campaign that you've seen in different countries will continue through the election. I think particularly in Iran, the Trump administration sees it as a politically beneficial to be seen as tough in Iran. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, back to my point earlier about potential actions at the UN. Um, so that's one that I think will certainly continue. Uh, the second is, and this is maybe even more focused on the election, this has to do with um, Latin America, uh, and in particular Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, that may be a little less relevant for this audience, um, but you know, some financial institutions and others that, that do business across the world. Um, that, I think, is largely a political issue for them. Again, there are some in the administration that care deeply about this and feel that they should be doing this, but there's also the fact that Florida is a major electoral battleground, and, and I, I would expect that you'll see um, more actions against those three countries uh, in the weeks and months ahead uh, for that reason, because they want to be seen as uh, uh, doing something against these, you know, so-called socialist countries. Um, and you know, just to give one example there, I think that there's likely to be some action around Cuba and Helms-Burton uh, and, and blocking some, you know, some companies or, or executives of those companies from entering the US. I think something like that is certainly possible. Um, so I think those are the two. The, the wild card is, is um, North Korea. I mean, there is still a maximum pressure campaign there too. Obviously talks have broken down. Um, I think that's probably gonna be in a holding pattern unless North Korea you know, does something really um, provoking, uh, then maybe there'll be more, you know, harsher sanctions. But I think other than that, that that'll probably just be, you know, I, I think largely Trump has given up on it at this point and is hoping that it doesn't come up again as an issue until after November. Okay, great. Um, I, I think um, there is a, an important uh, country that we haven't uh, touched on yet, uh, namely um, uh, China. Um, China is also one reason why I think um, uh, the European Commission and, and 
and and, and Europe is is trying, um, uh, you know, is 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 trying to reassess its uh, its strategic position, and is um, is um, trying to, uh, to to increase its its um, its uh, technological and 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 other um, sovereignty. And I think the pandemic. Uh, has uh, shown uh, where, where many uh, medicines and many um, uh, PPE equipment uh, came from from China or or um, from India, uh, but often with uh, Chinese uh, supply chains, uh, that there has been a, a, a larger or an acceleration in 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 in, in thinking about uh, how how Europe can make itself less dependent on uh, on, on certain countries. While at the same time recognizing also um, the cost uh, of um, of interrupting economic relations with China at a at a broader scale, um, perhaps. Now it it seems to me that that Trump hasn't been um, or that Trump at least uh, you know hasn't been afraid of uh, of uh, interrupting uh, economic ties with China at a much larger to a much la larger extent, and and bilateral relations uh, had already, you know, I would say uh, deteriorated quite uh, quite significantly um, since uh, Trump uh, came to office, um, despite uh, perhaps the, the phase one trade deal in in January, and now since the outbreak of the pandemic, uh, I think uh, relations between uh, Washington and Beijing appear to have reached a new low where uh, trust has been eroded and, and each side is uh, accusing each other of, uh, of basically being uh, uh, the originator of uh, this global pandemic. Now, my, my question is, uh, to what extent do you think has the pandemic uh, perhaps accelerated or changed uh, the US approach uh, towards China when it thinks about its uh, its strategic position, but also its uh, uh, its uh, in economic interdependence uh, with China. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you bringing China up because that you know that's obviously a big issue that we haven't addressed at all. Um, everything we've talked about so far has been what I would argue are lar largely short-term issues, and you know, depending on political situations. You know, for example, if, if there's a change in the U.S. administration uh, in uh, January, you know, Iran and Cuba both go away as issues completely. Um, so, you know, those are all sort of, you know, based on views of uh, of this administration uh, and their allies in Congress. China, however, is a what I view as the long-term issue uh, and the continued focus of the U.S. Regardless of who wins the election, uh, I think COVID has accelerated that viewpoint. Um, you talked about the supply chain issues. I think they had been looking at, at that already, but COVID put into stark relief the fact that we, you know are particularly uh, dependent on China for many things, and particularly around uh, health uh, and health-related uh, PPE and other things. I think that you know many people sort of woke up to the fact that we need to be more resilient uh, in our supply chains. I think that's not just true in the US, obviously, that's true in Europe and, and elsewhere. Uh, but you know, putting that aside, um, China is very much, I, I think the view in Washington now is that China is a strategic competitor. Uh, that is, you know, really bipartisan and I don't think is going to change anytime soon. Uh, I, I don't think that there's much view on either side of the aisle that, that there's much room for, you know, going back to the old 
approach of total accommodation uh, or anything else. Not that they won't try to work with China on issues, of course they will, but I, I do think that this sort of more adversarial approach uh, is here to stay for the long term. Now, this comes to a couple of different issues. One is around resiliency, which you know we can talk about briefly. This is not really related to sanctions, but you know I, I do think that the U.S. is looking at ways to beef up their own supply chains and uh, and, and and the like, um, and, and I think that will continue. Uh, the other thing is on export controls. Uh, this is an issue we haven't talked about yet. Uh, you know, sanctions are also an issue for China to some degree. You know, there may be some sanctions around Hong Kong, for example, depending on how Beijing implements the law. There may be some sanctions around cyber activities by China. There may be some sanctions around Xinjiang, but all, all that I think is a, largely a sideshow and not going to be super impactful. Um, the main issue with China is around uh, preventing them from getting access to U.S. technology uh, to slow their rise as a competitor. And I think that is the stark issue in front of the U.S. Uh, whether or not we get to a full decoupling down the road, I don't know. I think some would argue that we're moving in that direction. Uh, but I think that you will see an increasing um, pushed by the U.S. to do things like they've already done against Huawei, uh, to continue to create the list of a foundational and emerging technologies that should not be going into Chinese hands to prevent uh, Chinese researchers from sensitive parts of U.S. research supply chain. Uh, all of that, I think, will continue to be an issue and, and has been accelerated by COVID, but certainly not. COVID is not the reason for it. Um, and then the last point on this is that um, you know, I think this is where the U.S. and Europe could potentially work together. Uh, obviously, you know, it's hard now because the relationship is so bad. Um, but I think that the U.S. and Europe have many uh, shared interests uh, on this matter. And, and I know the EU, as you said, Thomas, is looking at how to be more assertive and have more of a geopolitical commission. I think that, you know, those that are... Um, uh, sort of pro-China voices within the EU have largely lost the debate uh, at this point. And, and I think that, you know, that's being reflected in some of the EU's uh, positions. Uh, and so I think the EU is going to try to play a role of more of a, you know, economic uh, juggler between the two and try to, you know, carve out a position between the U.S. and China that, to try to get the, both of them to accommodate and find middle ground. So I think that could be a useful position. Um, but we'll have to see. And then obviously, if uh, regardless who wins the election, actually, you know, the U.S. I know for a fact is working with the EU at the moment to try to get them to get on board with new export controls, uh, whether they can get an entire like-minded group together or not, or, you know, just pick up a few countries uh, to do that. Uh, I think that that will continue to be a focus as well. And this is very much an area that even if the Trump administration continues, they will want to work with Europe on, on how to prevent technology from, from going to China. Yeah, that that is very interesting, and and I I guess already, um, especially against Huawei, um, uh, you know, something that is perhaps accelerated by by the current crisis, uh, but something that the Trump administration already before uh, was very much um, focused on. Do you think? Uh, I mean, Hong Kong is obviously a, again an issue now with the national security law. Um, some U.S. congressmen are now supporting a bill to basically impose. Uh, sanctions on on Chinese officials who implement uh, the law. So, but you think that uh, given the let's say the, the economic costs of uh, decoupling, which you know would be much larger with China than with anyone else, uh, that we are basically talking about a, a rather a, a much more targeted, uh, perhaps uh, you know, approach towards uh, China than we have seen 
in in other cases. So I think we'll see a more targeted approach on the sanctions front. Um, you know, Hong Kong is the best example of that, where I do think the U.S. will feel compelled to do some sanctions against Chinese officials, uh, if depending on how they implement the law, or the security law. Um, but I don't think that they would do, you know, broader economic sanctions against China, for for example, because of concerns about spillover effects and and, and all the rest. Uh, I also think because of the trade deal between U.S. and China, which you know President Trump is still uh, hoping to implement and at least tout as a somewhat of a, you know, a deliverable that he can talk about in the upcoming election. And so I don't think he wants to jeopardize that. And you know, the worst thing would be for China to denounce the trade deal and walk away at this point. Um, so I think that that. Uh, is is going to be a calculation as as well, um, but uh, I do think that so that that's just sort of where it will be tempered. Uh, I you know I I don't think they're going to temper their approach on the um, technology side, uh, and if anything, I think that is accelerating now and and will continue to uh, accelerate uh, in the months ahead. Yeah, that's a a, a good point, and and perhaps because you you, you just mentioned. Um, the uh, we repeatedly mentioned, uh, you know, the, the the pre and post November era. Um, I, uh, as you rightly said, I, I would say that uh, Trump's uh, approach uh, or Trump's um, President Trump himself has been, you know, uh, uh, a toxic figure uh, largely in Europe uh, to work with. Um, how how do you think? Uh, Joe Biden's approach uh, towards uh, sanctions towards Russia and, and China in particular uh, would um, would be different from from Trump and and how um, you know and how this might create perhaps uh, a stronger unified front uh, in some of these areas. Yeah, that's a good question, and, and that's really the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Um, first thing I'll say before I answer that is that. Uh, I don't think people should expect that if Trump wins again, that that means it's going to be the exact same uh, policies as you see now. Uh, I do think that he may feel less constrained uh, and potentially open to doing more things, you know, maybe wanting to get a deal here or a deal there, you know, starting to think about his legacy, et cetera. Uh, and so there may be some more willingness to, to work with allies. Uh, I don't want to make that seem like that's a huge thing that's going to happen because the trust is pretty low, but certainly uh, it, it may not be the exact same dynamic as it is right now. Um, if if Biden wins, you know, it's a different story. Uh, and I already mentioned, I think some of the easy ones, Iran and, and Cuba, I think those will go away as issues. You know, just a brief point in Iran, I, I don't see how it's possible that the Biden administration, if, if he were to win, could just sort of, you know, rejoin the deal and say, that's that, let's pick off where we left off in 2016. Times have changed. I think his team recognizes that times have changed. And so I think he's going to want to have something you know, at least a commitment by Iran to start talking about other issues or whatever to 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 do it. So I, I think that'll be one to watch. But certainly that you know, I wouldn't expect that all the sanctions across the board will will stay in place for long, uh, as long as Iran is willing to to play ball. Um, Russia is a much harder one. Uh, as I said before, it's a bipartisan issue in the U.S. and I think Russia is doing many things around the world that the U.S. doesn't like. I don't expect that's going to change if 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 Biden wins. Um, so I think that the sanctions that are in place now will largely stay, at least in the short term. Don't forget that Biden was, you know, the point person on Ukraine in the uh, in the uh, Obama administration, and so I think he feels very strongly that if if they don't implement Minsk or do anything like that, then they shouldn't take off the sanctions. 
so I think that that's going to be one to watch. At the same time, you know, I can see a scenario in Russia where Biden is going to be very concerned about Russia's actions outside of Russia, you know, the Middle East and elsewhere, and, and going to be very hard pushing back on that. But he is a, um, you know, conciliatory by nature, at least looking to, you know, he thinks that talking is a good thing. And so I could see a scenario where they at least start to explore areas of common interest with Russia and, uh, and see where that goes. I wouldn't call it a full reset because it's not going to be, I think that the relationship is too broken, but, uh, you know, he'll at least be willing to, to have that. I, I think he'd be willing to have some of those quiet conversations. But, you know, for the purposes of this group, that doesn't mean that sanctions are going to go anywhere anytime soon. Um, and then, you know, more broadly, I think that the, the Biden presidency would view sanctions as still a tool. I, I don't think that this consensus around sanctions has changed. I still think they think it's a, you know, they believe it's a good tool to use. Um, that said, uh, I know that there will be some in, around his orbit that, you know, think that it shouldn't be all about sanctions and sort of have seen this record play over and over and, and maybe um, more willing to look at other options. And in particular, you know, he's going to care a lot about what allies think. You know, that is really Joe Biden's 101. And so um, I think that will constrain the U.S. in many ways. Uh, I don't think that they'll be as willing, for example, to unilaterally impose sanctions on uh, adversaries without buy-in from Europeans. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to be see eye to eye on everything, but he's going to try really hard for that to happen. And so that may mean that some of the more aggressive actions that you've seen out of the U.S. may not be as likely uh, during a, a Biden presidency. That is really interesting. And uh, we actually have a, a question uh, related uh, to the UK uh, from uh, um, an, a listener. Uh, and, and I think which is um, a really interesting um, case because the UK will, uh, you know, at the end of the transition period, uh, by the end of the year, uh, will also then uh, finally have an, uh, a fully autonomous um, sanctions uh, policy, uh, which, you know, is likely to diverge quite uh, significantly from, uh, from that uh, of the EU. Uh, I think, uh, as far as I know, um, the EU and the UK haven't even agreed on some form of uh, coordi coordination uh, mechanism uh, to make sure that uh, both are uh, at least relatively closely aligned. Um, and so uh, it, it, it seems to me that, um, at least in, in particular areas, perhaps uh, like, uh, like uh, on, on Russia, uh, the UK might... Um, perhaps uh, increasingly be, be aligned uh, uh, with some of the uh, US positions. Now, on, on China, I guess uh, that's a harder, uh, harder question. Um, it's, it's true that uh, David Cameron, uh, you know, he declared, I think, a, a golden era uh, of relations uh, with China. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the US government uh, was not very pleased with the decision to, to allow Huawei some sort of participation in uh, the development of uh, 5G in the UK. Now, I think the at least what we have been heard coming out of uh, out of Whitehall is that uh, China's um, uh, behavior during the pandemic um, quite uh, at least perceived as uh, an aggressive. Uh, information or disinformation campaign, um, uh, and uh, and uh, basically a, a policy of of uh, also concealing, uh, you know, 
information that would have been uh, quite helpful for for a whole lot of people around the world uh, that this is now also leading to some uh, some form of rethink um, in, in in the UK and I think um, uh, while it's it's probably still uh, too early to see how, how exactly where exactly the uh, UK will position itself between the EU and the US um, uh, starting uh, next year I think in in areas um, in particular on Russia and and perhaps um, to a lesser extent on China, we might see um, the the UK increasingly at least uh, tilting uh, towards the uh, US. Um, John, I think we have reached the end of our um, time. So I would like to uh, thank you uh, very much uh, uh, for uh, joining us today. And I would like to uh, thank uh, the audience uh, and everyone who has uh, who have stayed with us until the end, and uh, would uh, I? I hope it was a, a interesting discussion. I've, I found it fascinating, and um, please uh, get in touch if you have uh, any questions on any particular areas. Uh, and um, thank you and uh, goodbye. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>